0: a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. Throughout the pandemic, we have heard about the actions of states that pose national security threats to Canada, such as hacking by Russia and China in disinformation efforts. But of course, states are not the only actors in cyberspace engaging in such activities. Violent extremists, criminals, and conspiracy theorists have also been active online, posing challenges in new ways to Canada's national security. To discuss this, I've asked Alex Wilner and Casey Bob authors of a forthcoming chapter on this topic in a new book on how COVID-19 has affected national security in Canada. Alex, Casey, thanks for joining me today.
1: Hi, Steph. Thanks for having us. Hi.
0: So I just want to introduce you a little bit to your audience because I think this is the first time... We've had both of you on the podcast. Alex, you're my colleague. You're, you're just down the hall from me. We're both now associates. That's fun. So can you just explain to the audience who you are and what you research?
1: Sure. So Alex Wilner, prof at NPSIA, and um, largely speaking, bread and butter projects for me have to do with deterrence, deterrence theory and practice in evolving and emerging security considerations. So you know, deterrence in cyberspace, deterrence and in artificial intelligence, deterrence and in countering uh, violence extremism. That's not what this chapter is ultimately about. It really has to do with the nexus between pandemic, social effects of the pandemic, and then how malicious non-state actors are using that space to further their strategic goals.
0: Great. And Casey?
2: Yeah, I'm a uh, PhD candidate at NIPSIA. Professor Wilner is my advisor, actually. And generally, my my research revolves around state-level cyber strategies and state-level use of emerging tech in terms of conflict. So while the use of cyberspace in this sort of sub-state sphere, where we're talking about everything from Q to Al-Qaeda, it's, it's not really in my wheelhouse, but it's it's hard to avoid it, and it's a key issue, and it's top of mind for policymakers, so we thought it made sense to explore it a bit, and sort of all things cyber, if you want to put it that way.
0: Great. And I'll just point out to our audience as well that you're here in your capacity as a PhD student within the Norm Patterson School of International Affairs, and not any other employer that you may or may not have. That's Right. Right. Okay. So I'll start by saying that, like I said in the introduction, we do hear so much about malicious state actors online these days. So what do you mean by malicious non-state actors and why do they matter online?
2: Well, I think, first of all, I mean, it, of course, like most other things, this is open to debate and interpretation. But I, I think from our perspective, what we mean are people or groups who do not have a clear nexus to the state, but who are exploiting the cyber domain for for sort of nefarious, self-serving strategic purposes. Yeah. However, it could be said that some of these groups that we discuss in, in the paper and throughout our research, take Q, for example, uh, they've been treated uh, indeed enabled to a certain extent by the the state and certain state actors. So in that sense, I mean, uh, could argue that they've been treated as a proxy to a certain extent uh, by the former United States government, as much as, say, Russian cybercrime groups have been a favorite tool of the Kremlin. So the difference here, though, is that some of these groups know their proxies or that they have a connection to the state and others seem to be totally oblivious to the fact that they themselves are being used by the state. So that's kind of a convoluted answer, but that's kind of what we mean by malicious non-state actors.
1: I would I would only add to Casey that we're, we're really intrigued with the non-economic side of nefarious activity, right? So there's lots of activity in terms of ransomware or hacking, all that kind of stuff. And that has a financial motivation. We're not really looking at that. We're looking more at how they propagandize, how they recruit, how they incite violence, right? And the, large, the larger substrate for this project really was to kind of understand that emerging space, right, between the pandemic, the actual health considerations, but also the social and political response, and then our pivot so from a societal perspective, our pivot to online. And so how are they inserting themselves into this new area to, to make hay, to make ends meet and to, to, to further their strategic goals?
0: So you kind of jumped ahead to my second question there in that response, which is very useful. Thank you. Which is what is the relationship, the nexus with the state? And I th- always think of Tim Marr's book on cyber proxies. He, I think he, the book's called Cyber Mercenaries, but he calls it cyber proxies. So with, with the different kinds of actors that you were looking at, and Casey, you mentioned this, that the nexus to the state isn't always obvious and, and actually may mm. even be unknown to the actors themselves. That's right. But can you talk a little bit more about that uh, with regards to to what extent may some of these actors be looking for state direction, may have been set up by, by states themselves, or to the fact that they're, they're maybe perhaps being nudged by state actors in a clandestine way?
2: Right, so I mean, again, these are very—they're they're such uh, challenging issues to sort of wrap our heads around. But so maybe I'll start with—you talked about Moore's idea of cyber mercenaries, which he, which he originally wanted to—he wanted the book to be called cyber proxies. Proxy as an intermediary that conducts or directly contributes to an offensive cyber operation that is enabled knowingly, actively, or passively by a beneficiary who gains advantage from its effect. So a clear example of that would be the Yahoo data breach, which he covers, which involved two Russian intelligence officers, 22-year-old 22, 22 Canadian in Canada, and an on-the-run cyber criminal in Russia. And so that's a clear example where there are individuals or groups working with state actors to achieve a certain objective in cyberspace. But then there are some murkier examples that we use in our in our in our chapter. We touch upon cartels or or QAnon. I mean, these are groups, even certain terrorist groups, their connections to the state are not particularly clear. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, what sort of influence there might be there, what sort of connections there are. So it's not always clear. But this kind of goes back to the attribution issue in cyberspace. I'd go a little bit further, though. It's, a lot of this has to do with ideas and theories. And so whose theories or ideas benefit who? Whose, whose theories are these? Whose ideas are these? Because QAnon is driving their satanic cabal narrative. Where did that come from? Who benefits from that? How does that destabilize certain groups? It's very challenging to to understand who is sort of not controlling the purse strings, but who's who's controlling the 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 thinking behind these these ideas and who's benefiting from them.
1: I was gonna say that part of the part of the research is to develop a data set of online malicious activity and we're kind of agnostic in terms of of what we're going to find in the sense that some of it will be religiously inspired, some of it will be inspired by other ideologies, and some of it, right, we could actually add this module if we wanted to, the data set could be influenced by state narratives or state interests, right? And then we could kind of capture that non-state proxy, mercenary, whatever language you want to use, we might capture that in the data itself. We haven't really done that yet. We're kind of, I'd say halfway through Casey, right? But Mm -hmm. the sense would be to casting a wide net, and then we're kind of divide and conquer what we find.
0: Right. Okay. So it's a bit of a teaser trailer here.
1: Yeah, it could be. Yeah, that's right.
0: Right. Well, it works for Marvel. Anyways, so <laughs> <laughs> so in your chapter, you identify three major online activities that you believe these non-state actors are actively involved in, delegitimation, recruitment, and incitement. So can you maybe walk the audience and myself through those three activities?
1: Delegitimation for me is the most interesting one, perhaps. It's ultimately about how these malicious actors delegitimize the state, right? Or or the government, it could be local, federal, it doesn't matter, but they, they basically suggest that within the pandemic, state responses, government responses are weak, are inaccurate, aren't working, or downright wrong, right? But the interesting point here is that they're not just delegitimating the government, they're actually also legitimizing themselves, right? They're reinforcing those extremist narratives because the message is the government has it wrong, we have a better alternative, so come and support us. That's, that. so that's a really kind of two-way street and it's fascinating. And so you've got examples, right? Al-Shabaab saying that the African Union is to blame for the spread of the disease, right? So more, they're, they're causing more harm than good. That's basically the messaging. You've got the Taliban, Right, tweeting out messages saying that we we've got our own public health measures. Here they are, right? They're better than the state. You know, again, like it's a two-way street, delegitimizing the state, legitimizing our own response. You've got the far right in Europe promoting, you know, alternative economic assistance offers, right? racist, but nonetheless alternatives. So, again, that's a really fascinating thing and we're seeing that across across the, the scope. And again, it's it's agnostic in terms of where it's actually emanating from.
0: That was really interesting because there has been a lot of work on how either insurgent movements or even criminal organizations will often in a conflict zone try to establish control through the provision of goods, through the provision of aid. And you mentioned this in the chapter, and that was really interesting. The other really interesting thing that you note in your chapter is the fact that you know the Taliban apparently tweeted out that they were happy to work with medical authorities in terms of trying to conquer COVID-19, I was not aware of this. So is that them trying to show leadership on this?
1: Yeah, I think that is their attempt to say that we are a legitimate alternative form of governance, just like we were in the 90s, right? And so they're saying we can play. So they take COVID seriously to a certain degree, or at least the measures, but they, they position themselves parallel to and opposed to the government operation. Right? So I think that's a that's a great case. Great case.
0: So the second issue that you guys identify is recruitment.
2: Right. So uh, if you look at the literature and you look at the data coming out throughout the pandemic, there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that many of these groups are using this as an opportunity, particularly exploiting the massive spike in internet usage, the screen time of individuals around the world during the pandemic to bolster their numbers and to recruit followers. And this we're seeing this from ISIS to Al-Qaeda to uh, QAnon to to other sort of right-wing fringe in Canada, the United States, Europe, and around the world. And in terms of Canada, there's been a clear spike in terms of engagement with far-right extremist material online during the pandemic, particularly following the first lockdown and, and subsequently after each lockdown. So we're seeing a lot of these groups in Canada, the U.S., throughout Europe, around the world really tapping into people's anxieties, the unknown. The opportunity here is really sort of, like I said, a perfect storm for these groups to recruit and, and get their message across and, and really take advantage of, of people during a time when so many people, so many groups are particularly vulnerable right now and, and when they're spending so much time online, and we're seeing a, a lot of this in Canada as well.
0: And presumably this is linked to the third trend that you guys identify, which is incitement.
2: That might be the maybe the
1: simplest of the three findings, I think, in a sense that it's active engagement, active measures, trying to help and promote anti-government activities, acts of physical violence or intimidation. And they're doing this, again, through the same measures that delegitimation and recruitment works in, right? But you've got ISIS basically, for instance, right, saying to its supporters in the West, however few there are left, right? Why don't you go and attack hospitals, attack urban center hospitals where they're already overwhelmed with COVID, right? And so, again, like it's a force multiplier of sorts, far right groups tapping into the Turner Diaries. Why don't we launch COVID biological attacks of sorts, right? Infect areas where there's high immigrant locations, right? Like that kind of stuff. And so we're seeing that as well. And and then of course you see the one-off events, the lone actors, uh, acts of anti-Asian, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim activities, right? Kind of hate fueled. Some of that is directly linked to the online space as well. So that's the kind of, that's the space we're looking at when we say incitement to violence.
0: I mean, it's pretty scary stuff. And like we're recording this in the shadow of the January 6th riots, where we've seen these groups actually resort to a, a violent attack on on Capitol Hill. One of the questions I often get from the media and, and sometimes uh, government folks is the, the chances that something like that could happen in Canada. Based on your research and what you're seeing, do you have any preliminary insight into that?
2: Well, I mean, our research, the numbers on a per capita basis in Canada are frankly quite alarming in terms of the user engagement in terms of far-right conspiratorial online content fringe platforms messaging applications I mean, there are reports that have come out that are, are, are pretty uh, pretty shocking and in terms of conspiracy theories I think that's something that we haven't really talked about too much here we talk about it of course in the paper but the conspiratorial element of this is really sort of foundational to those three pieces that we talked about: recruitment, inciting violence and intimidation, and delegitimation. And so that conspiratorial thinking is very strong here in Canada. And it, frankly, you don't have to go on fringe websites, you don't have to go on the dark web to see to see these things. Just spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes on Twitter, on social media, and you will see everyone from a known sort of right-wing conspiracy theorist or actor that you don't know to to maybe even a family member. Their first post of the day might be how to make a cake, and then their second post is about QAnon and how those theories are, maybe there's something there, there's more to it. So it, there's almost been this sort of mainstreaming of conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking, which is to sort of be expected, but that's very strong here in Canada, and the data supports that. And so I think policymakers and the authorities need to be, uh, and in, in fact, I'm sure they are, looking at the possibility of, of those sorts of events uh, that we saw in Washington happening here in Canada as well. I,
1: th- I think what's fascinating is the, the January events in the capitals were they kind of borrow that flash mob kind of aspect to it. Like there was some quasi organization behind the scenes but a lot of just hanger honors right just kind of going with the crowd and that kind of i think that kind of events those kind of events kind of emerge quite quickly and and it's not just against the federal parliament right it's also you could th- think of this as happening in provincial capitals as well and so just like in the United States as, as the case as, as an example and so there is a degree of organization but there's also a degree of spontaneity and it's, it's hard to see where that spontaneity will pop up next and in, around which specific community, specific province, and what specific topic that spontaneity will, will emerge from and around. So that's this is kind of space we're looking at.
2: Going back to the conspiratorial element of this, because again, I think that is really foundational to all of these issues. Studies have shown, experts have shown that a psychological predisposition to reject expert authoritative information The tendency to view major events, political events, economic shocks as a byproduct of conspiracies, as well as partisan motivations, are the strongest sort of explanatory factors uh, behind COVID conspiracy beliefs. And so all three of those things, predisposition to reject expert opinion, strong partisan motivations, and a tendency to believe that certain events are conspiratorial in nature. All of those things are very strong here in Canada as well. We might look down South and and, and think that these are unique to the, the U.S. or unique to certain European countries. They're certainly not. All three of those elements are very strong here in Canada.
0: That kind of speaks to my next question, which is about the drivers of, of this phenomenon. And I think, Casey, you just spoke to that in your last answer, the fact that we have individuals here who are kind of predisposed to rejecting experts, anger at the government, all these kinds of things. We, we look at this kind of through the United States and think, oh, geez, thank God that's not happening here. But you're, you're saying it is. is. Is there any other drivers that we should be aware of that seem to be coming out of the research that you're doing?
1: Yeah, I would say that there's the whole technological aspect to it, right? I mean, we're, we're doing this in cyberspace, and I'm not, cyberspace is not new, but it's still very much a wild west. Casey mentioned the problem of attribution. I think that still holds. People are, they feel that they are free to post what they wish and how they wish and to interact with whom they want online in a way that they don't in physical space, not a pandemic issue. That's right. That's that's longstanding, but I think it's relevant. There's also, if you think of cyberspace as, as largely ungoverned, there's a lack of international co- collaboration and cooperation between governments, regulators, private sector. Some of that is emerging, right? tech against terrorism would be one kind of collaboration. We've got the Christchurch call, all that kind of stuff. But, but nonetheless, right? There's still this sense that it's a free-for-all and that free-for-all is right for, for the picking. And so some groups are, again, making, making sense of that. But then the core issue that is pandemic related is our deep dive from a societal perspective in, into online interactions, right? If you, if you ask the Amazons of the world, they say that online sales are five years ahead where they expected them to be 18 months ago. Well, I would say that everything that we're doing, Steph, and everything that we're doing in governance, that's five or more years ahead in terms of the pivot online. And again, that's a new space. So if you think of school online, work online, religious service provision online, governance, sales, everything is online. And so this is, again, fast forwarding the effects of that digital space and the interaction. And I think, again, malicious actors are filling in to, to make sense of this for their strategic purpose. So that's a larger trend that predates the pandemic, but I think it's been fast forwarded as a result of the pandemic and our response to the pandemic.
0: So if we were already behind in regulating or generating online governance, we're now even five years further behind than we were before the pandemic started.
1: Possibly. I would say yes. I would think that the way that we respond to these activities lag the development of these activities. But I think there's momentum towards that. And again, that momentum to start regulating social media, gaming platforms, other areas where people interact, that pre-exists the pandemic. But now I think we are in a bit of a crunch and there's a greater awareness that more needs to be done.
0: So before we get to what can be done, I just want to note that in the paper, you say that it's difficult to assess where this is going. All this online, the kind of amplification of, of extremist voices and extremist activity, you say it's a bit hard to understand what this means for Canadians and Canadian national security, although it's hard to believe that it's really anything good. So, I mean, I can understand why you guys say it's hard to know, because as, as you say, like, a lot of the stuff is clandestine. A lot of the stuff is hard to monitor because it's taking place in, in hidden chat rooms and things like this. Are there things that we can do to better understand this issue or at least follow it?
2: Well, I think, I mean, as researchers and also those who are in a position of, of creating policy and in the, in the security, defense and intelligence community, there should probably be dedicated groups, not just one or two FTEs or three FTEs or five. There should be large groups of people, maybe divisions within certain departments and agencies who are starting to look at these issues at a more granular level. And, and rather than looking at them as some sort of foreign phenomenon that we can't really take action on. I think the, the first step is sort of tracking these issues, analyzing them, better understanding what they mean, looking at really a, at a closer level, what the nexus is to Canada and then thinking about, well, what can we do in this space? Because as far as I can tell, there are very few, maybe none significant groups within the government of Canada looking at these issues and them in, in any truly meaningful, impactful way.
0: And just to be clear to our audience, FTE means a full-time employee. Oh. You're right. Just <laughs> translating Sorry. from government. But yeah. Okay. So in other words, would you see this being like in law enforcement, in national security, some kind of new open source body within the government of Canada? I mean, cause it is a lot to say, I mean, I'm with you. I think we absolutely need to be looking at this, monitoring this. And right now, a lot of this work seems to be done by kind of a very good, but at the same time, ragtag band of activists who are online, who are going through infiltrating these groups and presenting this work. And that's how, that's the kind of stuff that's informing this conversation that we're even having today. But at the same time, it's a lot to kind of say that the government should go online and look at spaces for things that could potentially be dangerous
2: well sure it is of course but i think there are two key things here that the first thing is education so i think this is this would be part of educating people when i when i am making these sort of suggestions i'm talking about educating decision makers researchers undertaking more research more comprehensive research on these threats feeding that into the policy the policy making the decision making cycles of of the security and intelligence community the defense community and then in terms of of money i was speaking on on anti-semitism and covid with an organization a number of months ago and i was speaking alongside one of the world's foremost experts on anti-semitism dr yehuda bauer from israel and he made the point that really you need To understand the financial, how lucrative it is for many of these social media companies, these platforms to have that sort of free speech to to create those those forums where people can say these rather outlandish, conspiratorial, and at times various things. I mean, that's much more profitable than everyone going online and saying the same things and getting along with each other and it not being adversarial. So. When I say money, we need to start thinking about, well, the criticality of free speech for shareholders. How much money does the government need to counter these things? How how do we regulate these things? Start thinking about the financial side of of, of sort of what we're seeing online, because it really all comes down to the dollar.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, because often what you hear is the extent to which people describe some of these uh, conspiratorial actors as not just people who are Trying to get a point across, they're also grifters. They're often trying to sell things. They're trying to sell their own remedies. They're trying to sell, you know, people things. They're fundraising. They're trying to get they're trying to get Patreon followers and things like this. I think that's that's true, and I like that idea of of maybe looking at not so much as a monetary thing, but like who's profiting off of hate. I think that's that's a really smart point.
1: Part of the, the the challenge of knowing where this is going has to do with the fact that it's it's not just about security; it's also about economics. It's about governance, right? And so, the pandemic has created you know some kind of economic malaise. People are concerned. A large subsets of populations are concerned about work. They're concerned about. It's just pay, putting food on the on the table. And that kind of uncertainty feeds into or certainly can help egg on some of the extremist conspiracy based movements. Right. And so but then what, what happens next? Right. We've got trillions of dollars getting pumped into the U.S. economy. If the U.S. were to pivot Post COVID and really charge up its economy, then some of that steam, some of that wind in the extremist sails, you would expect to dampen. That's where we, this is where I think we're playing with much larger and not, not just security oriented aspects here, much larger themes that are driven by societal trends. And the same with polarization in, in politics, right? That drives the wedge between people that militants and, and others can make use of. Okay, I'm not saying I don't have a solution to political polarization, right? But I think that's part of the larger substrate that we need to explore.
0: Well, I think we should cancel the podcast because if you don't have an answer (laughs) to political polarization, why are we even here? No, I think that's fair. But uh, perhaps this will be the last question I ask you guys, which is that we've discussed potential solutions to this and the fact that it's hard and there's all these other issues such as polarization that are going to need a much more comprehensive response in some way. But right now, politicians are discussing in Parliament the need to regulate social media companies. Do you think the evidence in your chapter could help inform that process? And are there any other steps that you think could be done or taken at this point?
1: I think what our chapter and our research, the larger project might do is add weight to the to the kind of debates that we're having. I think if so just going back purely to the militant use of the internet, right? If you think 18 months ago, that was a, still a relatively niche topic. I mean, yes, it was very prominent to certain types of activities that we want to, to, to stop, but it was considered a counterterrorism or a PVE, prevention of violent extremism activity, which did not touch a lot of Canadians, right? But now what's happening is that these non-state actors have broadened their activities, and it touches all aspects of society because they're really targeting some of those public health measures that all Canadians feel. And so, you know, inadvertently they've broadened the scope of their activities to generate strategic gain. But by doing that, they've also rung many more alarm bells. So again, it's not just a CT, counterterrorism issue, PVE issue. It's much broader than that. And then you can imagine that because it's not just a niche topic, that the response, the hammer will come down and we will find a way to better regulate, better monitor, and hopefully deter this kind of activity from social media. Not an easy thing, certainly the momentum is in our favor to do so today
2: i'll just add on i mean i don't know whether or not the answer is to regulate social media companies but something obviously needs to be done i mean we're headed in a the wrong direction here you can't have silicon valley dictating what is and is not appropriate free speech and thereby how people should think we're in a very dangerous space right now and and if If politicians, if decision makers and policymakers don't take some pretty strong measures, some pretty swift action relatively soon. I mean, God only knows what this looks like in a year or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I mean, so I, again, I don't have the answers. I don't know if regulating social media companies is the answer, but there is evidence in our chapter and in, in numerous other works that are coming out and have come out over the last year that point to the fact that we're in a very dangerous place right now in cyberspace and in the digital realm, not just on fringe platforms. People keep talking about Telegram and Gab and all of these sorts of applications and platforms that most people don't use, or most people aren't familiar with. Go on Facebook, go on Twitter very dangerous things being said on there regularly which have now just become it seems like sort of accepted regular part of uh daily station when five ten years ago this would be wild i mean this would be totally outlandish and now it's like yeah so and so said this what like something needs to be done there or god only knows where we're headed
0: so on that disturbing note, I'm going to just thank you both for coming in to speak about your research here on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure having you on.
1: I want to thank our funders for supporting our research. we got a Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society, a TSAS grant for this, but also a DND Mobilizing Insight in Defense and Security Minds grant from the COVID-19 challenge. So thank you both for your support.
0: Well, that's great. I think they've been uh, funding some really excellent projects and I'm glad it includes this one. And I should actually say that the book that this chapter will appear in was actually sponsored by the SSHRC, Social Sciences Humanities Research Council, and their special COVID-19 project. The book is being edited by three regular members of Intrepid Podcast, Tomaj Juno, Amara Mersingham and Leah West. And that should be out with University of Calgary Press open source, so free and available to everyone later this spring. Thanks for coming on, guys.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.